2: Hello, this is Sam from the Grape Nation. This past winter, I had the uh, good fortune to attend the Naples Winter Wine Festival and sit down with some of the best people in wine, and have done a series of interviews. This week, we're going to be talking to two of the most powerful people in wine: Saskia de Rothschild from Domaine Barons de Rothschild, and Laura Catena from Bodega Catena Zapata. Enjoy. welcome to the grape nation your weekly wine journey on the heritage radio network we are at the naples winter wine festival benefiting the naples children and education foundation i'm very excited about our next next guest our guest is saskia de Rothschild. she is the youngest person i'm going to pat you on the back a little bit she's the youngest person to currently lead a first growth bordeaux estate her family's chateau lafitte Rothschild, and also the first female chairwoman of Domaine Barons The Rothschild. Welcome to the great nation, Saskia. Um, there's a lot more going on, but those are fairly, in the past few years, recent happenings and you know, very important. Um, tell me a couple things. You were not always in wine, and you were not always in France, mm-hmm. which is really what your family or on the wine side is in France and in wine. Tell me a little about your journey in life in wine, Before you got to this, you were doing some interesting things. So tell me a little about that that got you to where you are.
3: So I grew up in France, um, mostly in the vineyards and in Paris and spending a lot of time in Italy because my mother is an Italian artist. And um, I always had a special link with, uh, with the estates, and I was going to do the harvest in the summers, and I would spend time there to see my dad. and I, I, I knew there was something extraordinary in those places, and I learned to drink wine and taste wine from a very early age, so that might shock Americans a little bit. But well,
2: <laughs> I mean, the more guests I have, that's, that's the culture and the upbringing.
3: Yeah, that was. Plus, it's the family. Exactly, that was really our culture, and and we were taught to close our eyes and and to really learn to distinguish different vintages, to know what we liked, what we didn't like, and and I think when you're when you're young, you have a a very sensitive palate, and and you learn a lot and you remember things. So it was a, a great upbringing to to have that. But then my goal in life and what I really wanted to do was to tell stories. So I traveled a little bit around the world and had the chance to be able to do a master's degrees in journalism at Columbia University. Which taught me a lot about the way Americans see journalism, which is the so right you way. You were in New York for a few years. Yeah, I was in New York for a few years and 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 learned a lot about how to fact check a story and and properly properly write one. And and um, were you in the School of Journalism? Yeah,
2: which is one of the best in the country.
3: Yeah, I was there, and it was a, a great opportunity to, to do stories. I did a big documentary series on female Marines leaving for Afghanistan, so I spent some time on Camp Lejeune and. North Carolina with these women, and it was absolutely very interesting. And and then I had the chance to, a few years later, to get a job at the New York Times. So I, I worked first at the Paris office of the International New York Times, and then in West Africa. So so tell
2: a, me one thing. When you finished Columbia, you pretty much left New York?
3: No, I stayed on for one year because I got a But sco- not a long time. No, so just for one year.
2: Right. Um, so you're at the Times in Paris, you're what'd you say in West Africa?
3: Yeah. I went then I, I traveled to Ivory Coast I was the correspondent there for a short period of time between they had two two correspondents coming and that was really interesting because it, it was covering the whole region even if it's not a critical region for the American oh, reader. It's an
2: interesting region.
3: It was really fascinating and I, I was Opened covering our, it
2: opens your eyes. It's-
3: yeah, I was covering everything from terrorist attacks to elections to what was happening in the prisons and the overcrowded prisons of of, of uh, Ivory Coast. And I traveled to Mali and to Ethiopia. And so it was... So what year are we at? I mean, where are we at? It's 2015 or 2016. Not that long ago. Yeah, and and it was... At that point, I had been coming back to Bordeaux every year because I was living in New York and, and around uh, for the blending of Lafitte because my father always said... Um, you have to be there. You have to be there. That's how you learn what we're doing. Y- blending blending uh, Bordeaux wine is part of what we do, so it's good that you, that you come and attend. So I, I was doing that, and, and one but time... Wait,
2: tell me one thing. Did you You, didn't, you would never go there begrudgingly but did you go there knowing eventually you would come back or did your father make you do it because he always hoped that this is, I, I mean, what was the dynamic that
3: It was, what, what's great is that I never felt forced to do it. Uh, it was really like, come and see what we do.
2: Perfect way to do it.
3: And, and But then one day, and it was when I was living in Ivory Coast, it was the trip I took to, to Poyac that year, and he told me, you know, one day you're going to have to come back a bit more than just once a year for the blending. And I said, well... It, I'll have to think about it, and I traveled back to to, to West Africa, and I gave it a, gave it a thought, and I. I that's when
2: you decided. That's when I decided you were that I commit yourself.
3: Yeah, and it was a big commitment because it was going from a life of total autonomy and and independence and traveling to to a life of of actually having a huge responsibility <coughs> on my shoulders, and so this was fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Okay. And when I took that decision, um, it was really because I felt I was the right person to protect the places I loved, and all these vineyards to me were extremely important, and I felt that... They
2: were part of your past, present, future, yeah, culture, So, life.
3: So I, t- I took that decision, and, and the only thing I told him is, well, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to really dedicate my time to to doing it full time, and one important thing to me was going back to school to learn viticulture and enology. So I, I enrolled in the BTSA, which is a diploma that you get in France and that allows you legally to be running a, a, a winery or vineyard. So I enrolled in that um, and spent one year studying studying that. Normally it's a two-year program once you have already... Was
2: it important? I mean, did you embed yourself in it. It was important that you understood what was
3: Super important. You and it didn't do it
2: just for the certificate. You, uh, no, no, you no. needed to get up to speed, right?
3: Yeah, it's the the reason I did it is that obviously you need to understand what you're talking about to make important decisions at the that will affect your vineyard permanently. You know, the way you you end up pruning your vineyard the way you fertilize your soil has an effect that is not just for the vintage right. of the year right after. Right. It will have an effect for years to come. So
2: Based on science,
3: I felt analysis, that research. even if there was a lot of great technicians who were working with us, I needed to know in order to ask them questions. So it was really useful. And
2: right, so you get that under your belt. Mm-hmm. You're running around the vineyards when you're a kid. You get out of your system... <laughs> doing what you wanted to do all over the world. You come back. So now there's this generational handover. Mm-hmm. All right. Recently, why and when? I mean, why did it happen when it happened? You were ready? Your dad? I,
3: I mean, well, I think- everything happened quickly here. It happened in a very natural way, more than quickly. It happened, so I started working at, at Lafitte in 2016, and I spent the two first years, so at the same time I was studying for this diploma and spending my whole time there learning all the basic tasks that a vineyard requires, from right. pruning to, uh, to being in the cellar and, and, and all, all tasks that, that go on uh, during a year. And I spent one year doing that. I spent one year also traveling a lot to the different estates we had. It was a moment, a key all moment. Over the world, right? Yeah, it was a key moment in the development of our Chinese estates. I really, really embraced that and, and helped my father uh, with, with all of that development. And I was going to
2: ask you later about that, but we're on it. I mean, we know the Chinese market blew up for wine. We know probably the original, most beloved wine... <laughs> Was Chateau Lafite Rothschild, um, and next thing you know, what is it? Ten years later, or whatever, you have a winery there, right? Yeah. It's called
3: Long Dai.
2: L O N G D A I,
3: which are two Chinese characters that mean the chiseled mountain. So tell me
2: the thinking behind that. You could make as much wine as you can or you want to, and you could use China as a market to import. Great market and or you could open a winery there. Is it just because it's such an emerging market that likes wine, you want to?
3: I think the, the, the reasoning behind, behind, the, behind actually going there was, was really, um, as you said, Chateau Lafitte was a, was a very renowned brand there. And it was saying, look, we love your country. We know you love wine. And we want to be part of the story of Chinese viticulture. And so we started going there and looking around and looking at different soils and mapping and and looking what could be done and thinking, well, we could do something great here. We found terroir that we thought was interesting in Shandong, which had the right elevation, which was near the the Yellow Sea. So it had oceanic climate. And when we found that, we were like, we're never going to do a Bordeaux in China. That's not the objective. The objective is to understand. And
2: you have to work with what's there, not what you want
3: exactly so found
2: the best opportunity
3: yeah and, and that was always what we wanted to do was understand what was there and and learn from it because we found this this vineyard in in shandong in the kyushan valley and it's it's a region where there's a lot of apple orchards and what was great is is the area where we decided to plant there's a village nearby and so it's called the, the village of mulango and so we worked with all of the villagers to train them to prune. And so the, the vineyard manager of Chateau Lafitte, Mathieu, came in and actually trained all these Chinese women to prune to prune the vines and, and is anyone else in wine doing it to that detail and level? Honestly, the vineyard we have in China is the most well-kept vineyard it's I've ever seen. So it's good. incredible. And, and it's Smart. And it's a lot big to do with, with the people we met there and, and their skills, because they're the ones who knew how to build the hand-built terraces that, that we ended up mapping our vineyard around. And, and, you know, we have 25 hectares, which is about... 60 uh, yeah, 58. F- 58, fifty eight, yeah. fifty something like 50 acres, so it's not a huge, huge, it's quite small. We have 350 terraces.
2: That's the way it's yeah, set up? Yeah,
3: that's the way it's set up, a little bit like rice paddies or like the Isn't images. Isn't that
2: difficult? It's a lot of work, work
3: to farm because you have to have, so we have very small tractors that can go in, onto the those very little terraces, and, and it's really like... Um, very precise work and each terrace is different and it's so it's it's very an old very old granitic um, soil type.
2: What are you growing there?
3: So Cabernet Sauvignon is our main grape.
2: And it, it acclimates well to climate the soil?
3: Absolutely we were really really proud and happy to see that it did well. We imported some of the clones that we we knew worked well and that we had seen um, that would behave right with the soils. And the two other grapes that we've had great success with are Marcelin, which is a grape that the, um, the Chinese actually really like, and they've a little bit made their own. Like the Argentinians have made Malbec their, their yeah. key grape. It's interesting. And so it's a, it's a hybrid from the southeast of France, and so Marcelin has good results, and Cabernet Franc, which is a grape that I personally love. I like it um, straight up, and yeah. I like a blended. Exactly. It is so a great grape. So those are the three, three, um, three components of our blend, and and we've been working we've been working on on releasing releasing having a good wine uh, a, a good enough wine to release it, and and that so happened. Nothing's
2: been released yet.
3: It has actually because so in in 2016 2017 we were working towards we wanted to release our first wine in on the 18th 8th of 2018 because the 8th is a important number, but After really analyzing the quality of the 2016 vintage, we thought, well, it's not good enough. We have to wait one more year. Right. So we ended up.
2: You're anxious, but you want to do it right.
3: Yeah, we. we, You know, it takes time in wine is crucial, and the most important thing was to actually explain to the Chinese that releasing a wine doesn't take five minutes. They were on our back from the beginning, saying, "Come on, you don't need the the vines. Just release the wine." Like,
2: you know. Manufacturing and quick in
3: and out. Exactly. So it was only on... You had to
2: tame them a little. Yeah, yeah, so it
3: was only in September of 2019 that we thought, okay, the wine is ready. We have a name. We have a, a label. We have a place that we can welcome people to and tell them our story. And, and so that, that just happened. And it's been an extraordinary journey of learning. Uh, learning a lot about a culture. Learning a lot about how to distribute to this culture. And also starting a story with... With people who know that they're gonna get better at knowing wine, and our wine is gonna get better because it's very young. You know, our vines are only eight or nine years old. Right. And some of them. What's are...
2: old is new. I mean, yeah. your family goes so far back, and you have old vines, but you have such a new venture. Yeah. But with such a slant. Um, I'm curious going backwards again. You come into the business, um, what do you feel you bring to the business? I mean, it, were they looking for youth, or a fresh perspective, or did your dad just say, I'm tired, you know, you got to do? I, I mean, I think it, it's on you now, and it, you have a different, I mean, you're young, you're a millennial.
3: It's all a question of eras. So my, my great uncle, Baron Elie, who took over right after the Second World War, um, you know, in, in forty six, his era was really an era of reconstruction because Lafitte had been seized by the Germans right. because we were a Jewish family. family. And so he basically took 30 years to reconstruct and, and actually have Lafitte make money because at the time, you know, owning a winery was not something that... You look
2: at the brand and you don't realize that part yeah. of history how difficult it was to everyone in exactly.
3: every way. Exactly. In the 70s Lafitte was losing money so it's and and some members of my family were saying well we should sell it you yeah. know. And so it's important to remember those times uh, and it it gives you a real humble attitude towards towards everything and then my dad came in in 1975 and his his era was really the era of science and Bringing in a chemical approach to protect the vines because you know, in Bordeaux, there's a lot of humidity, so it's a real issue of how do you yeah, make that sure. That was
2: the time after the World War where that's how yeah. the vineyards were treated.
3: And so, me, 40 years later, I, I come in, and I think my dad kind of felt that his era was. The the challenges of this time, he he understood, of course, but he wasn't the right person to conduct them. And what are those challenges? The absolute transparency that the digital world requires from us. So we have to be absolutely uh, impeccable and, and transparent on everything we do and sustainability and where so we're going.
2: to sustainability and to talking about, you know, how your dad literally treated the vines, you've shifted away from that? Yeah, You're it's... You're moving more towards a sustainable, natural
3: approach. Absolutely, and it was you. You can't blame the what was happening in the seventies because it was well, everybody just, was
2: doing it. everybody was Marketing doing it,
3: too. and that was just the yeah. movement. So of course now we're in an approach that is considering considering way more the way people were doing things. Of the, in the last century, you know, and understanding the ecosystem, and uprooting certain plots that never should have been planted, right. and so um, and and thinking in 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 terms of uh, in terms of. Um, Cover crops and and approaches to protect the vines in, in a natural way. So it's it's really. Do
2: you a, want your kid running through a vineyard that's treated with pesticides? No.
3: I, I agree with you. You probably don't. Right. And so no, we're we're really on on the path of, of converting certain of our vineyards to organic farming, and um, and so it's been that that was one of the first challenges, and the second one.
2: So first challenge and a big one
3: huge absolutely second one second one is i think the the other side of this is is the digital world and how it creates this new marketplace where things are a lot closer and a lot more transparent like is it, that
2: good bad hard
3: it's hard uh, it's hard because you have wine searcher and so you see the price of a wine online in two the, seconds the
2: immediacy the availability
3: yeah And I think that's a real challenge to us is is to think about distribution and how do we know our customers better, how do we get closer to them. And we have a lot to learn from the American winemakers with their direct-to-consumer systems where they have the chance to know exactly who will drink the bottle and how. So I think that's also a a real... But isn't
2: isn't that changing? I mean, the market is shifting. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bordeaux and... Bordeaux to a lesser extent than Burgundy has become expensive Mm -hmm. and the market has now shifted to millennials Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and they're not spending that kind of money.
3: Well, the thing that I'm really trying to to, to advocate, and, and that's what I tell my friends, is that it, one, once you have your first big paycheck or once you become somebody, you can, of course, go and buy a Hermès bag. And
0: There's nothing
2: wrong with that.
3: There's nothing wrong Everybody with that. Everybody wants
2: to celebrate in their own way. But Whether it's a Hermès bag, champagne, or a bottle of... Yeah, but... whatever.
3: But to me, like, buying a bottle of Chateau Lafitte or of Chateau L'Evangile of the birth year of your first kid and keeping it until he's, like, 20 or 18 to drink it, it's the most extraordinary thing you can do. So I believe, I believe that, yes, what, what the wines we're producing are expensive, but you know, they linked to such a special moment and such a special right. experience. If you actually keep we're, a bottle.
2: We're not poo-pooing expensive wines. Mm-hmm. And I think you eloquently stated why there's always yeah. a place. Um, but, you know, some wines are getting expensive. But there's a place for everything. Yeah, and, you know, and we also
3: sense. we also have wines that are less expensive, right. like our Chilean estate, Los Vascos. So let's, let,
2: let's run through the properties quickly, because I think people know the wines, but they don't necessarily know that it's, you know, part of the domain baron. Mm-hmm. thing. So let's start in France. Flagship wine.
3: Chateau Lafitte.
2: The Rothschild.
3: Then we have Chateau du Arminon. Which is a fourth growth, which is right. neighbouring of Chateau Lafitte and the same teams work on both chateaus and it's it's a, a That's
2: D-U-H-R-T-M-I-L-O-N.
3: Exactly. Right.
2: I want people to um, know. Perfect.
3: About. Then you cross the river to Chateau l'Evangile, which, which is, is
2: legendary too.
3: Absolutely, which is where I learned uh, right. a lot about winemaking and did did all of my internships as a kid. So it's a wonderful place, small estates, to twenty two hectares, and uh, so it's it's in the heart of Pomerol, so where where the the queen grape is Merlot, Hello. and um, and so an absolute wonderful place and and you should all drink Chateau l'evangile and then if you go a, a bit further to Sauternes, which is an area where we produce uh, licorice white wines, uh, we we own an estate that's called Chateau rieusec
2: R i e, u s s e c. Exactly. How do you pronounce it? rieusec It's funny. My friends pronounce it Ruchek. Ah. Re- I, I'll go by you.
3: And it's so a wonderful,
2: soft sort of turn sweet wine.
3: Yeah, we also, also produce a, a dry white there because we've seen recently that it's difficult to. That's
2: Semillon and uh, Sauvignon Blanc.
3: Exactly. Okay. And we've seen recently that it's a difficult time for licorice white wines. There's really a little bit of a shift in fashions, and so people are not that interested in having that kind of wine so
2: I think it's coming back you'll see
3: we're hoping it's coming I back and we're doing am, we're doing everything we can I for it to come the back
2: well all right so is that that's the Bordeaux
3: yeah and then we have a little estate near not too far from Chateau Rio sex called Chateau Paradis casseuil that is a very good bargain for price, very qualitative uh, red Bordeaux, uh, little château. All your
2: expertise and technique is applied to that. Exactly. It's
3: perfect. It's a 50 hectare vineyard that's very hilly and, and, and a beautiful, beautiful area of, uh, of uh, Bordeaux that's called Entre-de-mer, which means between two seas. So. N T R E D E U X M E R S M E S. M E R S R S de mer yeah okay entre de mer and then in people Bordeaux hear this,
2: I want them to you know I gotta go yeah. out and try that but what yeah. but, you know
3: and then in it's Bordeaux it's not your accent or anything it's, okay people just don't you know they don't know the names and then in Bordeaux we produce a range of of um, of more accessible wines that are called légende légendaire right and we have so uh, Pauillac uh, Médoc uh, uh, Saint-Émilion and the Bordeaux
2: those are larger production wines.
3: Those, yeah, right. and those, the objective... And
2: quality, the price.
3: Yeah, and the objective is really, you know, sometimes Bordeaux can seem a bit complicated, like Bourgogne, with uh, with all of its Premier Grand Cru des, and Appellation des. And so this is a range of wine where we... we Our objective is for them to be qualitative, easy to drink, and easy to understand, for, for it to be a first step into people learning the differences in Bordeaux. Right. So that was important, because as you say, you know, we, we're not... We do make very expensive wines, but we also want to make approachable ones right. for people to go towards loving wines in Bordeaux.
2: It's important you do
3: that. Yeah, and it's a real challenge because one thing I've noticed is that Bordeaux has been a little bit um, like seen as old, and people don't want to drink the wines that their parents were drinking, so they could think, "Oh, Bordeaux, it's boring." Right. So it's important for us to have that kind of wine right. to, to to have younger people think that Bordeaux is cool
2: and then you're in La
3: Languedoc yeah in Languedoc we have an estate that's called Chateau d'Ossière that is in organic farming and uh, that's
2: um, more typical of the region to farm yeah. organically right
3: yeah exactly and it's it's a blend of uh, Syrah Grenache Mourvedre and Carignan which is quite classical over there and we have a Chateau wine which is which is uh, our icon and we also have a rosé that is very qualitative and that we're really nice. working hard on and then South America. South America, we have one wine that's Los Vascos. That is an, an estate in Chile in the Colchagua Valley. Um, it's a huge estate, and it's an ac- absolutely incredible place. It's um, where we produce um, re- Cabernet re- Chilean Reds, and but also very premium uh, Le Dis de Los Vascos, right. which is our premium label, and and it's it's. It's a venture that, that my father started about 30 years ago, and and it's been it's been a, a, a very yeah, fun it's adventure. A very well
2: known brand. Yeah, it's, very, it's
3: very well known in the U.S. And I think it's it's now our duty to to make mm-hmm. it uh, resonate with younger generations because it was kind of a wine that was very drunk um, 20 10 right. years ago or 10 years ago, and now we have to kind of tell the story of that estate right. again. That's a, challenge. a
2: little yeah. market and all that you may be able to succeed in social media yeah all right did we cover all the wineries
3: no in argentina we have a, oh.
2: a project caro? Called
3: bodegas caro with the catena family
2: we just saw laura catena as you were yeah. coming in right
3: so um so that's a fun blend blended wine of uh, uh, malbec and cabernet sauvignon so we're really bringing in two two cultures and two approaches to winemaking and making it into something that we think is, is better than the sum of what they are. So,
2: you, you didn't forget that Malbec was one of the five blending grapes in Bordeaux.
3: It used to, absolutely. Right. Yeah, we used to have some in <laughs> Not Lafitte. Not so much now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to have some in in, in Chateau Lafitte. We had Malbec. Yeah. Malbec plots.
2: Um, so that's everything?
3: And our Chinese winery.
2: Oh, right, which yeah. we talked about. Long Dai. Um, we jumped into that earlier. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about being a woman in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel anything about being a woman in the business? Do you feel people don't look at you the same way? I mean, you have a lot of things backing you: your dad's support, the name of the, you know, winery, the reputation. But there's not a lot of women prominently in wine owners, even winemakers, getting better. Mm-hmm. But is that a challenge to you, or you don't see or feel it? I don't want to put words in your mouth.
3: I, I'd i say the, the main challenge is being maybe a woman and, and my age. It's a kind of a double of a double thing because uh, when I walk into an event people think I'm the intern and uh, well that's a fair <laughs> part
2: of it. the old story in a restaurant is a woman sommelier comes over and the guy says could you send the sommelier over yeah exactly you know that's the, age is definitely part of yeah. the answer separate being a woman putting it together
3: so I've always had a, a fun time with it and or uh, either I, I just like get, go along with the conversation of people asking me what do I do at the estate, and uh, I went, can and I go get the boss and things like that. Or <laughs> but but it's actually it's actually normal and I think it's also normal in the first years when you're running in a state that, that you have to have that challenge and, and my main ammunition against that is is showing that I know what I'm talking about and showing that I'm very open to to having people tell me their stories and having people at the estate um, explain what they do. And my job before as a journalist was asking questions, and I've never stopped. What I do right now and what I've been doing for the past three years is continuously asking, but how was it before? Why are we doing it this way? How can we change it to make it better? What would you like to change for your, your position to be more interesting? So it's basically constantly interrogating the situation for it to be better.
2: So does that mean you are or have to work harder than a guy, maybe? (laughs) I mean, that could be the crux of the whole thing, which is not fair and why, but...
3: I don't know if I have to work harder. The the good thing is that uh, I have a team of people... Who are really um, benevolent to what I do because they know I work, they know I work hard, and they know I'm really behind. It trickles down. Yeah, and I know they know I, I'm really behind them to push them and for them to to be to be better and for all of us to work together. So I think that gives you respect, you know. Right,
2: you create a culture. Yeah. That you want to be a part of, and you exactly. want everyone to be a part of it. Yeah, world. and
3: also a culture of dialogue and of it's being a little bit less uh, hierarchical and all this. So it's, it's I think uh, more than just in the wine business, it's globally how do you look into running a company, you know. And, right. and, and I think France has a lot to learn from, from other countries and in that I front. I think
2: with China and with you there, the word global is mm-hmm. an important aspect of where you want to take the company, right? Mm-hmm. It always boggles my mind when you have a product any product a product like yours and we just ticked off all the wineries around the world it's just amazing how do you keep the product you know there's excellence everywhere you know how how do you control that i mean that's people right
3: it's it's completely people and it's
2: because you can't be in south america and the languedoc at the same time no you want to
3: Basically what what I'd say is that it's it's knowing what you want to see not change. It's knowing in your soul and intuitively what are the core things that shouldn't change and having the the freedom to actually uh, push things to evolve that you So you
2: have to have the vision. Yeah. It has to be clear.
3: It has to be completely clear. Execute it. Yeah, and Lafitte never followed fashion, and that's why, why we, we are where we are today. You know, at the time of where Robert Parker was having everyone make very powerful wines with really big shoulders, we never went in that direction. We were like, no, that's not our style. Lafitte is and what.
2: And Bordeaux succumbed
3: to that. Yeah, and From Bordeaux succumbed to, to on. that. And in L'Evangile, we succumbed to that a little bit more because Right Bank was more open right. to change. and so. But in Chateau Lafitte, it never changed. You know, it's like the terroir was yeah. teaching us to do something. We went, we went in that direction. And then I'm really happy to have, to have learned that from my, my father and right. from the people I've been working with. It's, it's basically like trust your gut and trust what you do best. And I think that's that's the most important thing. It's like you can be excellent but you have to be excellent your way. Right. Um, you so. have to
2: have your own compass yeah. and follow it. Do you sleep at night?
3: <laughs> I, <laughs> do, I do, I do. You get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm always curious too.
3: I wake up in the middle of the night when we have like, frost alerts. Yeah. Oh, and right. so th- when we, ha- in, in April in Bordeaux... Does Boro- something
2: go off or something in the Yeah. In, frost alert.
3: No, in, in, in April in Bordeaux, we, we, have, we have short nights because, because you can have to get up at four in the morning and go put candles in l'évangile all around oh uh, to make sure that, that our grapes don't frost. So sometimes we don't sleep.
2: <laughs> all right, I have to let you go. I also wanted to mention that at the Naples... Winter Wine Festival, you are the honored vintner. Every year, the whole, you know, mass of all the wine people, they select one person, and you're it, and that's a nice thing to be and be part of, and I know you're down here for all good reasons. Um, Before I let you go, when you're not drinking your own wines, what do you like to drink?
3: Um, I love Loire whites. You do?
2: Yeah. Chenin? I okay. think, is a really
3: interesting love grape. It. Um, I love um, what do I lo- What do I love? I love um, Rhône, Rhône wines.
2: North or south? Do you like the Grenat? You do. Both. So both, you both. like a Saint Joseph as much as a. Yeah,
3: a Chateau Rayas. Those no, are all great ones. The, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no.
2: give me one more.
3: And what else? What have I been drinking I'm surprised recently? I'm say champagne. I don't drink that much champagne. I love Burgundy wines, but um, you don't drink as much. I know my dad. I, every birthday and every Christmas, I ask my dad to give me six bottles of Burgundy.
2: So that's how you're building your collection. So I have
3: a little your cellar. Dad's back.
2: Okay.
3: <laughs> so I have a little cellar of Burgundy wines. It's every year becoming a little bit bigger, and so I open. Key bottles on key occasions. So I love burgundy and, and, and so I'm, I'm really sensitive you know, to it. Bordeaux has do.
2: gone through some changes mm-hmm. um, generational changes, sustainability, price but burgundy certainly has its, it's just structured so differently. I Completely. mean, that's another show. I gotta let you go. I wanna thank our guest Saskia de Rothschild from Domain, Baron de Roth, Baron de Rothschild. Um, We discussed all the different wines she makes, and they're fairly ubiquitous, so you can Google them or walk in somewhere and see them, you know, Um, but I want to thank you for coming in and spending some time with us, Um, and also thanks for coming down to the uh, wine festival and helping these guys raise a lot of money, and I hope if you'll answer my email to see you one day in France. For sure, for
3: sure. All right. Thank
2: you very much, Saskia. Thanks. Bye.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pick up and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's. But since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com go slash great nation.
2: Welcome to the Great Nation, your weekly wine journey on the Heritage Radio Network. We are at the Naples Winter Wine Festival, benefiting the Naples Children and Education Foundation. Our guest is fourth generation winemaker, Dr. Laura Catena. Welcome to the Great Nation, Laura.
4: Thank you, Sam.
2: Um, just a sidebar, we are into, we're going into our fourth year of the Great Nation. And I wanted to point out that I think it was September of 2016, Laura Katena was the first guest ever on The Grape Nation. Now, Yay. you certainly, <laughs> I've evolved. You just continue to, you know, be great. So it's, it's great to sit down with you again. All right, so I was invited back to the uh, festival, and it's a great charity, and they bring great winemakers down. And when I found out you were here again, i made sure we got together um and part of that is i don't even know if we can cover everything there's a lot going on um with you and you can help me slot it or you know how you want to break down i want to talk about the book i want to talk about your play i want to talk about some newer wine projects you know we always have to talk about um catena in argentina so where do you want to start
4: well, maybe we can start with Malbec, which okay. is uh, you know the variety that my country is known for. It was first planted by my great grandfather, who came from Italy to Argentina in 1902. It was brought from France to Argentina in 1852. So this very ancient grape dates back to you know Middle Ages. Actually, initially with the Romans, right? It was planted in, in Gaul, you know the 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 old France, and um, basically became lost. In the old world, because after phylloxera, uh, it was it was a delicate grape. So phylloxera is this little plague, this insect that chews at the roots of vines. And interestingly, it was brought from America to France. But, uh, you know, I once said to an American, don't you feel a little guilty about, uh, no. you know, the phylloxera? And, and you know what he said to me? Actually, it was the French who brought it. And, and it is a true fact. If you read, there's this great book about phylloxera that the French brought the American vines for ornamental purposes. So uh-huh. they brought them, and they would put them, you know, in window this place. And then a few people said, oh, it's so pretty. I'll put it in my vineyard. And then what happened was that the phylloxera insect did not harm the American vines, but it did harm the vitis vinifera, the European vine. But you know, nobody knew that this was going to happen. Right. And um, well, the, the end of the story is that basically all the vineyards in Europe are destroyed, and then this, uh, this American from Missouri, this entomologist, comes up with the idea of grafting american rootstock with vitis vinifera so that we can still have our cabernet sauvignon and merlot and it's hard but with either. the right but the roots are from an american vine which is resistant to phylloxera and that's how basically viticulture is saved in the world uh, interestingly though in argentina we have a little phylloxera but doesn't propagate so it's not a big problem for us but it is a, a problem in europe in most countries
2: is that um, climate And environment-driven, you know, moisture, or or not necessarily? So
4: there's a lot of theories. So in Argentina, it's quite dry. In Mendoza, in the wine country, by the Andes. And also, we have these very well-drained soils with a decent amount of sand. We also have limestone and, and uh, gravel and all kinds of things. But generally, with a dry weather and some sand in your soils, the, the phylloxera does not propagate as much. However, we do have phylloxera. Uh, and there's other parts. There's parts of Australia where the phylloxera does not propagate. Right. But most of the vineyards in the world right now are planted on American rootstocks. In Argentina, only 5% of vineyards are planted on our American rootstocks. Wow. Yeah. So anyhow, other Is that st-
2: as low as anywhere? Um, Pretty much. I, th-
4: I think. I mean, Chile is also highly yeah, ungrafted, but, but Chile ha- has uh, yeah. probably more grafted vines than Argentina does. Okay. Uh, but so continuing on the story of Malbec, it comes to Argentina. It is basically lost in Europe because it was very sensitive to cold, and they had this little Ice Age, so they didn't replant it, even if it was, you know, just as important as Cabernet Sauvignon in the Medoc and Bordeaux, where the famous, you know, the Grand Cruz come from. But it comes to Argentina. Somehow it does well. I think there's something about the soils, the sunlight, the mountain climate. And Argentina embraces it. But it doesn't see the rest of the world for a long time because we w- have...
2: Which you have a big hand in. But I'm curious yeah. about something. Yeah. When it was brought to Argentina, and I don't think you explained this, why Why Malbec? Why didn't they bring, you know, Cab Sob or, you know... Petite I mean, yeah, well, why I, was I it, it singularly, yeah. well, no, no, no. If, if one country is associated yeah. singularly with a grape, it's ma- w- w- why Malbec?
4: So actually, the, uh, the viticulturalist, who was a Frenchman hired by the Argentine government, the one who brought all the cuttings from Europe, because we had been making wine in Argentina since the 16th century, from varieties like criojas and similar the to the Mission grape, which actually is seeing a revival Brandt right now, we can, great. we can talk it's about that later. But basically, these, these classic um, you know French and some Italian varieties were brought in the middle of the 19th century by this French viticulturist. And actually he brought Cabernet Sauvignon, he brought Malbec, he brought Sangiovese. I mean, a lot of different cuttings were brought. Nobody really knows why Malbec was planted more than everything else. And I have two theories. The first theory is that Malbec was the most important variety in the Medoc. And Argentina at that time was going through a sort of French love affair, and they were actually importing to Argentina a lot of Bordeaux wine. So I think that they were saying, hey, this is the most important grape in France, it has the status, we want the best grape, so let's plant that. Um, My other theory is that it also did better than other varieties, and the truth is, in Argentina. You can plant a lot of varieties and they'll make great, you know, good, good, good wine, great wine. Malbec makes exceptional wine in many different places in Argentina. So I think there is what we call a terroir match, you know, when the soil and the climate actually match the variety, you know, like it's like the immigrant that found its home right. in the new world. Right. I think it is one of those stories. So, so I think it's, it's a two pronged answer to why Malbec.
2: I, I think you're right in You know, they both sound very logical. Um, So, and if you fast forward, I mean, I think, and this is a compliment, straight up, if you talk about the acceptance and prominence of Malbec, I think you could put that on the back of your dad and you, um, as far as being ambassadors and making quality wines and exposing the world to it. and I'll give you an example. I was in Uruguay in June. I forgot to tell you. That. And Tanad is associated with Uruguay, right. the way. And it's just there's just nobody there, you know, like your dad or you that is taking you know this on. It could happen, and that's another discussion. But um, I think you have a very important hand in Malbec.
4: Well, you know, the, the, thank you for, for the compliment. Uh, and it is true that my father and I have sort of tirelessly traveled the world the talking about world. Malbec, but also really working on how do we make a Malbec that's as good as a great Cabernet Sauvignon, as a great you know, Syrah, as, as a great Pinot Noir. And some of the work we did was actually research work. And you know, this is something that's a little controversial in wine, talking about the science and the art. Most people would like wine to be all art. You know, like you walk into your winery, you grab some grapes, you step on them, and out comes this gorgeous. Art and romance. (laughs) Art and romance. And there is actually a lot of art and romance in wine. And we'll talk later about my book. But that's
2: not necessarily how you continue to make great wine. No.
4: And and I'm fascinated by the art and the romance and the history of wine. However, how did we make Malbec, which had been forgotten by the world, by the French, by the whole world. When I first went around you know, as a doctor, because you know that's my other job as a physician, but occasionally I would go help the winery uh, to, to sell. And I would go around with a bottle of Malbec in the, in the early 90s. And I would go into a, a store. The, the sommelier would, would taste the wine. And he'd say, oh, this wine is wonderful. But I can't buy it because nobody knows what Malbec is. And I can't sell it. This was, you know,
2: a light bulb early mid
4: '90s. The people didn't know Malbec. Not that long ago. So, but how do, how do, what did my father and I do? We started studying Malbec, and we found that we had these masal that means very diverse selections of Malbec that have been lost to Europe, but were only remaining in Argentina. And we started selecting the best plants, replanting them, studying what are the best soils, you know, what how we should do the pruning, what cover crops to use, and we did a lot of research at what we call the Catena Institute of Wine, which which I founded in 1995, we learned why high altitude has more sunlight and makes the skins thicker and the wines more concentrated. So we've done all this research for quality, and I think that's a big part of why we've been able to, to make uh, really age-worthy Malbec, Malbec that's very profound.
2: You've committed to that, and I think beyond what you're saying, I mean, the acclaim is there. You know, the criticism is very positive. If people go by ratings, the ratings are high. Um, well, we
4: had the, last year our first 100-point wine by Parker. We've had 100-point wines by Suckling. That was a the, dream. No, it, it, those are
2: all great, but, but <laughs> you put your wine next to other great wines with people, and they're right there. That's Thank the real. Thank you. you. You know, that, that's yeah. you know, what you've accomplished. Um, so, of course, you couldn't sit on your hands as being a spokesperson and ambassador for Malbec you had to make a play about it.
4: Oh uh, yes. Right.
2: <laughs> Which is if people know you and I've gotten to know you through the years it makes total sense. So just as a side thing tell me what what that cuz it ties into what you yes, know we just yes. talked so, about. Yes.
4: So, you know, I want people to, to know this fantastic history of Malbec and I know I'm biased, but I do think it's the variety. <laughs> I, I, thank you. Is <laughs> the variety with the most fascinating history, because it, it literally almost went extinct, but it was revived. And then it became world famous again, but now from Argentina. And so actually, my, hist- my sister, who is a historian, gave me this idea of doing a label with four women who tell the history of Malbec. So the first woman is Eleanor of Aquitaine, you know, this this famous queen of France and England. Right. Um, and she lived in the 12th century, and she drank Malbec supposedly at her wedding. Then the second woman is the immigrant who came to Argentina. So there were 6 million Europeans from Italy and Spain. One of them was my great-grandmother, Ana Mosheta who came from Le Marque to Argentina, and she was Um, who my great-grandfather called her his vine whisperer because when she planted a vineyard, it did well. And one time, actually, she was pregnant, so he had somebody else plant the vineyard, and he said that vineyard never took. (laughs) And so he thought she was the secret to a well-planted vineyard. And then the third woman is actually not a woman. She is the insect, phylloxera. But why is she a female? Because the reason that phylloxera could not be eradicated, right. it's right here, um, is because... That's phylloxera? I'm yeah, going take a picture of the eye <laughs> yes. and post it It's a those skeleton. Actors. So the reason why they couldn't exterminate phylloxera, the plague, was that it mostly exists in the female form. And they couldn't find the males. And the way you stop a plague is by stopping the reproductive cycle. And they couldn't stop it. So actually, even the, the villain of the story is female. And then the fourth figure is my sister. And she wanted it to be me, but I'm the older sister, and I won, so it's her. And um, and she's sitting on on the, the, the world showing South America and our winery, which has the shape of a pyramid. But now about the play. So I wanted this story that's told in the label, told in some other way. And I have a brother-in-law, my sister's husband, who is a playwright. And he wrote a a play that we are now touring all over the US. We've done it in Europe, theaters, wine stores, restaurants, and it's been a great success. And it tells the history of Malbec through a single woman who acts the various women of Malbec. It's
2: such a unique idea. I mean, novel, too.
4: Well, you know, it's really fun because at first I was not sure that people would like it. Because, you know, when I say at my house, I have, you know, two sons, a daughter and a husband, I say, does anybody want to go to the theater? You know, the initial reaction is immediately, no, we hate theater. It's so boring. (laughs) I love theater. But I thought, hey, is this something that's going to be appealing to a wider audience? But it is. And it's, you know, it's only 20 minutes. So it's fast. People get so engaged. They're so excited at the end. But I still haven't been able to get my kids to go see it. Well,
2: (laughs) you're on a schedule. I know that you're, we're in Florida right now. You're going to finish up in the state, and then you're going to go back on the road to California, and then you'll be in the Northeast.
4: Uh, Well, first I'm going to Argentina because it's harvest right now.
2: Right. Yeah, uh, I'm
4: going to be in, uh, right. You're going to
2: finish in Florida, I guess, January, Feb. Yeah. Then you're going back. Yes. And then when you're done with harvest.
4: Yes. um, Then then we're taking the tour uh, to the East Coast.
2: Yes. So if people are hearing this and they're like, wow, that sounds pretty cool. How do they find out more about it? Is there any way to do it?
4: Well, we are posting on our Instagram account, on okay, our so Facebook. Okay, so let's tell
2: people what the Instagram yeah. account Yeah, so
4: the, for Catena, it's uh, at uh, catenawines.com. And that's C-A-T-E-N-A. Do you so know that. what Catena means in Italian, Sam?
2: Um, I should know by now. And, and
4: in Latin. Most people, for, I tell them and then they forget.
2: I think I knew this and I forgot to Tell me.
4: So it means chain. And I, I always know. think of it as the chain of mountains. I didn't know that. Yeah. So actually, most people that sell our wine don't know this, uh, because they actually think it's a Spanish word. They, they want to right. put the little thing on Typically,
2: the end. Yeah, Typically, if it's you actually go back Italian. to the history, there's a lot of immigration yeah. to Argentina, Italians, Germans, yes, yes. the whole thing. Um, so if you're interested, I think it would be fun to follow Catena Wines and Laura anyway, so you'll, you'll be able to find out about that. Um, when we sat down, I said, we have a lot to talk about. Um, you framed Malbec so eloquently, um, and you featured it in a play, and besides being a doctor and raising kids and making a wine, you wrote a book.
4: That's right. So And
2: it's an interesting But I just got it. And if you love wine, it kind of hits everything you like about it. So answer the sort of typical mandatory questions. When did you write it? Why did you write it? And let's talk about what it is.
4: Okay, so my first book was Vino Argentino, that I think we spoke about in our last interview, which is basically still a guide, around still around, still guide. around, guide to uh, you know all the wine country of Argentina. It has lists of wineries. Have
2: you updated it. I mean, it's something. Yeah, to so think we about. did
4: we did do an update uh, of some of the information, so it's pretty current right now. Okay. Um, the restaurants I recommend are still open. Right. Uh, That's but important. Uh, yes, uh, but it probably could use another update. That was published that in 2010. Was, I just
2: sat with Jan C. Robinson and Hugh Johnson. They just did their eighth World Atlas.
4: Amazing. But
2: it was seven years before, so you don't have to get nervous.
4: Okay, thank you. <laughs> but anyhow, so, so Gold in the Vineyards. Actually, just like Vino Argentino. So
2: the book is called Gold in the Vineyards.
4: Yes. So I basically, with Vino Argentino, with my first book, I wanted to find a writer to write it. And then I talked to a bunch of people. And I didn't find anybody that was passionate enough to write the book. And so I ended up writing it myself. And this second book, Gold in the Vineyards, which is a book about the 12... Most illustrated, when I say ilus- illustrious, you right. know, the most famous vineyards in the world, and it's an illustrated book.
2: Stop there for a second. So, 12 of the most illustrious vineyards, you probably won't get much of an argument, but the 12 picked by who and based on what?
4: Okay, so they are picked by me. Okay, I <laughs> so knew that was the answer. Forgive me if it's a bit arrogant, perhaps. Well, you have but... the
2: chops to, you know, <laughs> get into that game. And what was the criteria? So
4: so the criteria were, you know, wines that have perdured through time, that have, um, that have sort of a, a world recognition, that people know them. You know, I go to all the wine shows, and... You know, those wines are revered. Why are they revered? Well, it's a combination of their particular taste, because they have a taste of a certain place. Usually, they're age-worthy. The the most famous wines in the world are generally age-worthy. And usually, there is an exciting story behind how that vineyard was founded, what happened to the family, how did the family you know, conduct their business. And I chose family wineries because, literally, the most famous vineyards in the world are owned by families. You know, I'm going
2: to take a few off. So the Rothschilds, yes. Antinori. And Rothschild and Antinori make a lot of different wines. Um, Spain and Lopez de Heredia, uh, US, Harlan, Italy, Gaia, a um, bunch of French. Burgundy, Aubert de Valaine, La Flavre, Guigal in the Northern Rhone. I mean, these are all, like I said, you're not going to get much of an argument. These are storied wineries. STORIED.
4: That's a good word. They use
2: the word storied, because there's a story um, behind Mm -hmm. it. So Laura picks these, and then you what? You get out on the road, and you start sitting down with the principals?
4: So in many cases, I knew the families. And I had already talked to them, you know, at wine shows or, you know, Piero Antinori, I've known him my whole wine life. Well, because the idea around? Not really, because I didn't want to do the standard winery book. I wanted some of the stories that maybe people don't know. Uh, and I think those are the stories that wine drinkers want to know they want to know about the struggles and you know the things that went well the things that went badly and i wanted to kind of pick through the stories that i wanted to include but they had to be true so i did a lot of research in order for the stories to be true and i also wanted to talk about soil and climate in an illustrated way because i think that you know if you write You know, okay, so we have limestone, and this is the soil pH, and this is the harvest date. That's really boring. But if I could put it in an illustration. So, for example, you know, did you know that Chateau Iquem? the famous sweet wine from Sauternes. All the grapes are harvested by women. They only hire women. You know, they're totally sexist, of course. (laughs) And why is that? Because they have small hands. Ah. And you need to pick through the bottricized grapes. And so there were all these little tidbits that I felt that people didn't know. Also, did you know that the... The real person who made Ikem famous was a woman. Why did she become the owner? Because her husband died literally a few days after they got married when he fell off a horse.
2: So she had no hand in it until he got out of the way.
4: Right. But in a way it, he, be he, way, it shouldn't be that way. But actually, the story of most women back then, the only way a woman became, became the boss was when the husband died. Right. Nobody lev- never ever left the woman in charge except for Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was actually left in charge by her father, but that's because she didn't have brothers.
2: Which is another <laughs> circumstance. No. Listen, yeah. you and I could do an entire show or two about women in wine. Yeah. And why not more? And you know whatever. But I mean, it's it's a point well taken.
4: Well, no, but actually, in the book, I made a deliberate effort to highlight both the female and the male stories. So actually, you'll see in the book that I have as many heroes as sheroes.
2: So you made it a point to make sure that all sides were covered. Yes. That's great. Um, I also mentioned, I didn't mention Henschke, which is a great Australian. I love those Um, lines. So it's fair to say that we're looking at somebody in the business that takes an insider's look. Because you're on the inside of the business that has properly selected these storied vineyards, and the perspective is not just the story, but to find interesting aspects about that particular winery, right?
4: Yeah, and and I also talk about things like you know their ratings, the scores, and you know right now there's all this controversy about oh you know we don't like the hundred point system. But actually, a lot of the fame of some of these properties has come out of some of these ratings. So I'm trying to, to bring well, the, I don't the
2: complete... deny it, but that doesn't mean there's not a discussion about it. Exactly. It, it, it has its place in the wine world. Yes.
4: You know, and, sure. and I also agree with the discussion. I think that it's, it's too narrow to, to think of just the score. Right. Uh, that's why I include in the book something about some of the ratings that the wineries received, plus their whole history behind them, and plus, what's the explanation for that special taste right. of that wine?
2: That's that's really the, the reality of it. Um, did you have to narrow it down to a dozen? Were there a handful of wineries more that you could have gone on and on with the book? Or how did you get to the final selection process?
4: Well. I think I could have probably done twice as many easily. Um, but
2: with the same gravity and quality and all of that? I
4: think twice as many I could have okay. um, easily. Maybe 10 times more, that would have been harder. Yeah. But you know, I always think of Paris and the Eiffel Tower. If you talk to anybody in the world, you say, Paris, what's your first thought? Eiffel Tower. So what are the Eiffel Tower equivalents? of these regions. Good way to uh, And, you know, for example, for Bordeaux, it's Lafitte. For Burgundy, it's Romani-Conti. So yes, there's many other famous properties that people in the wine world know about. But what's the Eiffel Tower? And and that's kind of what I was looking for.
2: I think you, uh, I think you nailed it. Um, So the book is really, really new. I mean, it just came out, right? Well,
4: so it came out in Argentina at the end of 2018 in December, right before the holidays. It actually now. did. Uh, no, no, 18, 2018. Oh. So yeah, so a little over a year ago. It did really well in Argentina. And so that's why I decided to translate into English. And so I translated myself. I had an editor you know, read over it. And then Cuarto Publishing is a distributor in Canada, US, UK, and English-speaking Europe. And I am actually working on a Chinese edition. Ah. Yes.
2: That's a big market. Yeah. I mean, all those wines are of high interest, yeah, yeah. specifically. So I, I'm
4: working on that. That's probably not going to happen for a couple of years. But but that's the next part of the project.
2: So to our audience, where do they get it? Is it
4: the standard so Amazon? You'll be able to get it Amazon, Barnes & Noble. They They're also uh, going to target some you know, stories that have gifts. Uh, hopefully, some wine stores will sell the books. Uh, although every time I go to a wine store and I say, "Are you interested in books?" people look at me funny. Like, no, people just want to buy well, wine.
2: That, that's <laughs> how you sort of get your finger on the pulse. <laughs> who gives a crap? Who doesn't? And, you know where you could find some yeah. leeway. Um, it's kind of. But but
4: this book is actually a fun read. I, I tell people, listen, get a glass of wine. You can just look at the drawings.
2: It is. I, I did get a copy, and it is a fun read. And when I asked you, how do you? Uh, now down to 12. It just gave me the idea. Why can't you do volume two, three, four, five, or well, whatever? Well, like,
4: like the Japanese manga. It doesn't diminish um, the importance of the
2: first one. Yeah. No,
4: we could, yeah. Are you familiar with the great the Drops of God, what's it called? The Japanese manga. Uh, is that
2: a particular one? I mean, I know a manga drops, is
4: So, no. So, there was a manga volumes? about wine that was oh, no, the I Drops of God or something like that. And it is... Very well known in Japan and Asia. In China, they read it as well. And it is the best writing about wine there is. Sam, you've got to read really? this. Yeah, you, you can find it in English and can in tell French. Tell everyone again what it's called? Well, I'm not 100% we sure, it's but it's... Drops the, the, of Wine. The Drops of God. Drops of God. The Drops of God. But basically, look up Japanese <coughs> manga about wine. wine, and you'll see it. And it's it's beautiful writing. It's, it's about a competition between two psalms for... One of their father's cellar, and they basically go on these journeys, uh, trying to decipher what a certain wine is—a secret wine—and it is fascinating. There's love stories, there's scandal. It's amazing. Yes.
2: I think most people probably have not seen it. Um, Continuing on, I notice that. Listen, you make a lot of wine. (laughs) Um, but you're working on two newer projects you're kind of shepherding these projects you want to talk about them one is something that's been around Domaine Nico but you're doing something specific with it and the other one, pronounce it for me again La, La
4: Marquillana
2: alright let's start with that that is a
4: natural wine
2: alright <laughs> so here's two questions and we'll answer the, the second one another time why are you making a natural wine? And I guess at some point you can convince me that all your other wines have a slant or an eye towards sustainability and the yes. land being important and all of that. But let's talk about this project.
4: Yeah, so... I mean, you're talking
2: no sulfur.
4: You know, one, one of the, the things that, that is so wonderful about having your own family winery is that you can do things that are perhaps you know sort of not commercially uh, you know uh, you know th- th- you don't know how well they're going to do commercially but you can you do can them risk, because you can take a take risk a shot, and there's no board a that exactly you can follow a passion so be, i met alice firing who you know is a very well-known writer alice about natural has been on wines
2: the show a couple times
4: you know wonderful woman we actually have a connection which is that her first cousin was my boss at the hospital at ucsf wow so we, we have this, this, you know, really kinda of strong family connection. And I, I read Alice's books, I even went to her home and tasted some of these natural wines and I thought they were really interesting. You know, a lot of people say, ah, you know, natural wines are disgusting. I think they have these kind of oxidized flavors often that are interesting. I like them and I also find that they're harder to drink fast. Because they're a little more bitter and not as smooth on the mouth, you drink them a little more slowly. And that my theory for why people say they get less headaches or less dehydration is because they're drinking more slowly. Because actually, if you think of the sulfites, they're also
2: a little lower alcohol,
4: a little a lower alcohol. That. Yeah, ours are too. Because actually, the sulfites in a glass of wine are like having one, you know, uh, preserved peach, you know, one dried uh, fruit. So, but anyhow, I actually thought these wines were interesting, and I went back home and I was talking to my dad and telling him about you know the tinajas the quevries you know the the clay pots and and how the no sofas and so my dad says what Th- you're saying this is a wine making methodology from georgia in in russia you know near russia he said this is how my grandfather made wine
2: in like <laughs> in argentina
4: yes in all that so so in, you, you,
2: in you call a, it a tinaja a yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so yeah, in yeah.
4: argentina from the 16th century to the 19th century, wine was made in tinajas, and it was kept underground.
2: So you didn't tell him anything new. No.
4: So he's like, wait a second. You know wh- what? What are you talking about? Natural wine. We this know is that. basically how my great Raffle. And but, he said, and he made wine like that in Italy. And actually, the innovation well, when he started making wine in Argentina was to start to use barrels. But his initial method and how wine was made in Argentina for four centuries was in this traditional method. So. I thought, wow, that's really interesting because nobody knows about that. Why don't we make this variety called Crioja, which is this pink variety, in the natural wine process, and it's going to taste like the wine that was made in Argentina for four centuries. And we tried this out, and the wine is delicious. It's like the best rosé so you've ever the had. the grape
2: is Crioja? Crioja. What's Crioja Chica?
4: Okay, so C-R-I-O-L-L-A. L-A. Chica just means small Criolla. Okay. And that is? So that's basically, white? Uh, it's it's a pink grape. It's pink. And it, it usually is used for table wine. But actually, when you make it in the natural wine method, it, it has this kind of slight oxidation. It's beautiful pink color. It's very light, but high acid.
2: Good profile for natural. And,
4: and you know, like that little herbalness that, that we like about Sauvignon Blanc? It's got that, too. So it's the wine that, for example, if you're having, you know, I don't know, like uh, a souffle or, or an empanada, which is like with the crust uh, quiche. And the meat. Like something the, that the has a lot of fat. and crust, right. And, and that, you know, you could have a red wine with it, but a white would be better, you drink it with this pink stuff, and and it's much more complex and textured than a regular rosé. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So we've made that variety. We've also made a Bonarda Chardonnay. We're, we're trialing with Mabec But it's it's a fun project, and it's called La Marquillana, because La Marquillana, which means woman from La Marque, was one of my great-grandfather's original brands, because he was from La Marque. Ah. So, so And it has the same original drawing that he used on his barrels that he used to sell wine in, in the early 20th century.
2: That's the good news. I guess yeah. the bad news is you're not making a lot, and it's not no, that easy to get What are our future plans for that?
4: Well, you know, right now we're making it in tinajas. Um, we can make the wine also get in get stainless steel. We need to get more tinajas. We have gotten more tinajas. Not sure. And, and, you know, actually, one of the issues is, can we sell this wine? So the Rosé, the Crioja, every person I've tasted on this wine goes crazy. They say, I love this wine. Is can there,
2: excuse my ignorance, but in Mendoza, which is cosmopolitan city now, Buenos Aires, um, even go, you know, Rio, is there a natural wine following or uprising like there is in the no, States? No, it's okay. very early. So <laughs> early there, there. there's a
4: few places. It's very early. People okay. don't understand the so wines. you're ahead of
2: the curve on this. Yeah,
4: and people might think there's a flaw in the wine, which, you know, if you're used to traditional wine, with. yeah, but, but I actually think the wines are interesting. So if we can do well with this wine and sell it, we would basically save a whole region of Mendoza. And remember we were talking earlier, and I was telling you, I think I'm making a bigger impact in the world as a winemaker than as a physician. So this, this whole area the in the east of Mendoza is very poor, because everybody moved to the Uco Valley to the cooler climate. Mm-hmm. And this whole traditional area has been sort of abandoned. There's these beautiful old vine abandoned vineyards. If we can make something interesting with the Crioja, with this natural wine style, which we've already shown that we can do it in a small scale, but maybe we can make more. It would actually change the lives of thousands and thousands of people.
2: So the prospects are good and for good.
4: I, I, hope, I hope so. Yeah, sounds interesting. <laughs>
2: um, and then one of, you name all your ones for your kids. Um, you're starting to focus on making a little more Pinot Noir, right? Yes. You found out that it's not a bad place to grow Pinot
4: Noir. So you know why so Pinot Noir? Domaine, Nico. Yes. Domenico Pinot Noir, uh, from five different sites. So why Pinot Noir in Mendoza? It's simply because my father and I used to go to France together when I was not planning to go work with him. It was just I was going as his translator because you know I was in medical school, but I studied French. I, I was one credit short of uh, minoring in French at Harvard for undergrad because I took so many French classes. So I would go with my dad as a translator, and I fell in love with the Pinot Noirs from Burgundy. And then when my father was starting his whole high-quality, you know, let's make Argentine wines that can stand with the best of the world, I said, why not Pinot Noir? And so we brought some of the best clones of Pinot Noir from France to Mendoza in the early 90s. And I've been making the Luca Pinot Noir for many years, which is delicious, and it's a blend um, of different sites Uh, That's what it was for several years, and then now it's coming from one place in Gualtachari. We also sell other Pinot Noirs in Argentina under other uh, labels. But then I thought one year in 2016, it was a very cool vintage. I tasted with Alejandro Vigil, the Catena winemaker, and Roy Urvieta, who is the Domenico um, winemaker, yes, who works at the Catena Institute. We tasted all the separate parcels of Pinot Noir. And they were so incredibly different. And this cold year made them even more different. And, you know, we say it's criminal to blend these wines. Yes, we'll make a beautiful Pinot Noir if we blend them, but we have to keep them separate. And that's where the idea of making a separate label.
2: specific And
4: Domenico, Nico is my daughter's nickname, but it's also my great-grandfather's name, Nicola. They share their name.
2: So So when you talk about sites, are we talking about, like, Burgundy, where they're not that far from each other, or are we talking all over yeah. the place? Yeah, so, so all these sites not, are very close to each, each other. To they each are but maybe all 20 miles soils from exposures. each other.
4: Very different soils. Some have gravelly soils. Have, some have more specific. limestone. Some are more shallow, more deep. They have different exposures. They have different altitudes, so more or less sunlight, more cool climate, less cool climate. So, and they're very different sites, and the flavors are very different. Really different. It's interesting. They go from uh, four thousand feet elevation to five thousand feet elevation. And that's a, a big difference.
2: Yeah, I mean you know that from uh, making your cabs in Mount and mountains. Yeah. You but know, but the very... idea
4: the idea was to look at places where Pinot Noir did well. We did not plant Pinot Noir in warmer climates because Pinot Noir does not do well in warmer climates. So what I'm trying to, to show is what is the taste of cool climate, high-altitude Pinot Noir in Argentina? And I think the wines are very elegant. They have beautiful minerality. They're very site-specific. Are you going to start seeing a lot of Pinot Noir from Argentina? You know, there's some really interesting stuff from Patagonia. Yeah. There's not a ton planted. So it's not going to become some sort of big thing. But if you can get one of these bottles, it's, it's a fun project.
2: Yeah, I think you should look out for that domain, Nico. And it's nice to see you uh, concentrating on that, um, Laura. We have to wrap up. Um, I guess I can't let you leave without asking how things are at Bottega Catena Zapata, and hoping your parents are well.
4: Yes, my father just turned eighty this year. Wow, that's he's big. still very involved in the winery. My mom, you know, she runs a software company. And she's, they're busy, um, they're partying. That's
2: where you got all your values from. In case you don't know, Laura is also a doctor, a medical doctor, and has been spending a good chunk of her time when it's not harvest in Northern California as an emergency room physician and other things. So I think the apple doesn't fall far from the tree.
4: Yeah, but their priority right now is the grandkids. They have eight grandkids, and that's their priority. And I'm very happy to work really hard so that they can have time to spend with their grandkids.
2: That's the best. It's all about (laughs) They deserve it. And listen, I've been down there, and my son has been down there, and I've seen pictures. It's just a beautiful thing when the whole family's together. When the kids are running around, there's a lot of musicians in the family. People are playing in the yards. It's a nice thing. Well, listen, it's always great to see you. I'm glad that we got to sit down and spend time here. And, you know, it was fun um, spending other time with you here. Um, And I wish you well with all these projects. And I hope to see you soon. And I want to thank Laura Catena. Um, from what I was going to say, from K- 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 Bodega Katana K- Zabata, but there's so many other things which we talked about. Um, I'm Sam Van Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grave Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. <capazes>